Well, Jimmy Kimmel, a late-night talk show host, said this on his show a few years back. Here's something I've been giving a lot of thought to recently. Friendship. Friendship is a sacred thing, and I believe Facebook is cheapening it. I go on this Facebook, and I see people with thousands of what they call friends. That's impossible. You can't have thousands of friends. Here, here's how you can tell who on Facebook is really your friend. Uh, say on Friday, post a status update. Uh, hey, I'm moving this weekend. I could use some help. The people who respond, those are your friends. Everybody else isn't. Well, now it's obvious, if not alarming, that the way that we interact with friends is changing. Uh, a few years back, Sherry Turkle wrote a bestseller called Alone Together, Why We Expect More from technology, and less from each other. She writes, human relationships are rich, and they're messy, and they're demanding, and we clean them up with technology. And when we do, one of the things that can happen is that we sacrifice conversation for mere connection. We shortchange ourselves, and over time, we seem to forget this or seem to stop caring. How do we get to this point where we would rather text than talk, where we would rather look through our Facebook feed than look at our spouse or our roommate and connect and have a conversation with them? Well, it's easy to rail against things like uh, smartphones and Facebook, Twitter, texting for our relational problems. It's an easy scapegoat. But technology is actually not the problem. Uh, the, the problem of connecting relationally has been around a lot longer than Facebook. Long before Facebook, but not too, much, too long ago, Dale Carnegie wrote his bestseller called How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean, I think the title kind of tells it all. Are friends objects to be won? Things that we want to influence for our own personal fulfillment? Well, whether you have a thousand Facebook friends or you've never sent a text message in your life, God cares intimately about how we relate to one another as friends. The, the God of the universe is, is not a power up there who's absent, but he's a person who is concerned with what kind of friend you are. Uh, not only does God care what kind of friend we are to one another horizontally, but God comes to us in the person of his son, and he offers friendship with himself, vertically, through Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want you to consider, are you a good friend? And I want us to consider the kind of friendship that Jesus Christ offers us in the gospel. My prayer this morning is that as we consider how God has sent his son so that we could be friends of the king, that we would be changed to reflect his character in our friendships. So this is not a topical sermon on friendship. This is a sermon from the book of Proverbs of what Proverbs has to say about friendship. And what God tells us in Proverbs is that a good friend is someone whose relationships are characterized by wisdom. 
So as I read through the book of Proverbs this week, I think Proverbs tells us that a wise friend does at least six things. A wise friend speaks life. A wise friend listens to the truth. A wise friend avoids fools. A wise friend promotes peace. A wise friend forgives. And a wise friend is faithful. I won't repeat them since they're appearing magically behind me. Uh, so, so that's what a wise friend is. We're just going to consider these briefly, one at a time, as we walk through the book of Proverbs together. So first, a wise friend speaks life. Proverbs has a lot to say about the tongue and how we speak to one another. Friendship, words are important, right? You know, Paul Tripp states the obvious. There has never been a good relationship without good communication. And what I want you to consider in this point is, are you speaking words of life to those closest to you? Are you speaking words of life to those closest to you? Proverbs 18.21 says this, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You are either regularly speaking life or death into your relationships. There's no middle ground. Your tongue is either set on fire by the pit of hell, or it's a wellspring of life. Your words are either God's truth or Satan's lies. Just look at the evidence. Proverbs 10, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. Proverbs 11, 11. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Proverbs twelve seventeen: reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We could just look at proverb after proverb, and the picture gets just more, more and more clear. Your words are either destroying or they're bringing life to others. I, I know this sounds extreme, but Proverbs doesn't present a middle way. You know, I know you're probably thinking, okay, that just, that just sounds too, too wild to me. When I'm talking about sports or the weather or plans, logistics, just daily life stuff, you know, how are those words either words of life or death? It's a good question. Uh, Proverbs is not telling us that every sentence we speak either brings someone down to the grave or like lifts someone up to immortality. Uh, it's just that our speech always reveals what's in our heart. Over, over the long haul, our speech will reveal what's going on in our heart. And there are only two kinds of hearts. Stony hearts bent inward in selfishness and pride, or soft hearts towards God and neighbor. Only two kinds of hearts. We, we see this clearly in the Proverbs. 16.23 says, A wise man's heart guides his mouth. And his lips promote instruction. 1528, the heart of the righteous weighs its answer, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. You know, the, the heart of the righteous, the heart of the wise, uh, considers before he replies, am, am I delighting and am I more concerned about airing my own opinions? Or am I going to choose to delight in truth and righteousness and in wisdom? Now, we, we use these, these words, truth, righteousness, wisdom. They're kind of big ideals up here. But what, what does it look like down on the ground? What does it look like in our everyday 
lives. Well, thankfully, God doesn't leave us alone, but Proverbs gets really practical. He speaks so that we know how we should speak. So Proverbs 10.21, the lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Is that how your closest friend would describe your speech to him or her? Uh, That you speak kind words to, to nourish your friend, to give honest answers? Consider, consider our tone. Is your tone regularly gracious in putting the others, that your, the others need before your own? Is your timing thoughtful? Or are you always having that talk late at night, you know, as, as you're tired? You know, when we truly understand the power of words to either bring healing or to destroy, we're going to be more deliberate and intentional in our speech. Uh, we're we're going to study our friends and consider what word does she need to hear right now? How can I cheer him up? What can I say? We're going to constantly have our antennas up to, to those kinds of things. You know, you know, maybe you just need to have a reality check this week uh, and, and ask your friend just straight up, hey, do you feel encouraged when we, when we talk? I know that might seem like an awkward conversation uh, or a question to ask a close friend, especially if you mainly talk about things like, I don't know, golf, grandkids, um, health. But if that's the the main kind of topic of conversation, uh, those kinds of things, that's the main agenda of what you're talking about, it may reveal that your heart is ruled uh, by your own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. So that would be a really good question to ask. Are you encouraged when we, when we talk, and, and why or why not? Uh, the book Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, puts it this way. Your words are always in pursuit of some kind of kingdom. You are either speaking as a mini-king seeking to establish your will in your relationships and circumstances, or you are speaking as an ambassador seeking to be a part of what the king is doing. Uh, you know, being an ambassador for King Jesus doesn't mean quoting a Bible verse every five minutes. Uh, but it does mean being oriented and, and fixed on God's purposes rather than your own. Uh, not using your friendships for your own fulfillment, but uh, considering other people's needs. And uh, really, like I said, studying them to, to know what's, what's going on with them and how you can nourish and encourage them. So why does this all matter? Why should we even try to do this hard work? Well, Proverbs 22, 11 says this. He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. You know, as, as, we, as we just considered in that quote I just read, all too often our words reveal that we think we are the kings of our relationships. Our relationships are there to serve us. Uh, we're concerned about our agenda, our interests, our own recognition. But it's at this point that we, we need to praise God that his glory outshines ours. Uh, he has the power to change us and give us a pure heart that delights in sp- speaking words of life and grace to our friends. 
And, and as he gives us a pure heart, he makes us friends with himself, the king. So if you're speaking words of life to, if you're not speaking words of life to your friends, maybe you're not a friend of King Jesus. I think that's what Proverbs confronts us with. So, so take some time to consider the state of your friendship with Jesus by considering the agenda and the content of your conversations with your closest friends. Uh, if you're speaking words of wisdom, grace, and life into the lives of your friends, uh, that's evidence that you're friends of the king. But if you speak to, what you speak about with your friends is more about you, um, your interests, your concerns, maybe you are your own best friend. So uh, just a practical way to kind of evaluate this is next time you get together with a friend, evaluate who's doing most of the talking. <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's you, you know, you need to have a little reality check. You need to take some time to, to think about what are some thoughtful questions I can ask my friend to really get to know and understand him. Uh, personally, I was convicted of this uh, a few months back. Uh, I, I met a guy here at the church who was, who was new, and we, uh, we decided to get together for some coffee, and we had about an hour before we had to go to work. And, uh, and I just, um, for an hour, I talked about Henson, theology, and myself. And after an hour, he left, and I was like, I know nothing about this guy. <laughs> you know, I hardly know him at all. Um, I, was, I thought I was interested in getting to know him, but my words revealed I was more excited about me that day, you know. So well, this is all something we really need to evaluate on a regular basis because the most important way that we relate to our friends is through our words. Uh, our words we see in Proverbs are either tearing down or they're building up. And the only way that we can build up others, the way that we can build up our friends is if the king is our friend and he's given us a new heart. Well, not only do wise friends speak words of life into the lives of their friends, but a wise friend also listens to the truth. So this brings us to point two, a wise friend listens to truth. Proverbs 13, 14 tells us this, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. We all know we need close friends. We, we know that. Uh, not friendships based uh, merely on common interests, on family, or how well the two of you connect your chemistry together. But we need friends, according to this passage right here, who will tell us the truth and turn us from the snares of death. You know, if you're a Christian, you already believe you're easily self-deceived and uh, that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion trying to get you to deny the faith. So what are you doing to regularly guard against self-deception and apostasy? Well, what we should be doing is we should be surrounding ourselves with friends who speak words of wisdom that lead to life. Uh, and what do these words of wisdom sound like? It's not, you know, make sure you're saving up mon enough money for retirement. It's not necessarily uh, make sure you give your kids organic milk. Uh, Instead, we are instructed that we are to surround ourselves with friends who will rebuke and warn us when we start going down foolish paths. Uh, Proverbs 9.8, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Do you love, do you love the people who rebuke you? Uh, 
No rebuke, I know, feels good. It doesn't feel good to be, to be criticized or point out where you are wrong. It doesn't feel good to be corrected. Um, but if you hate that, you're a mocker. Uh, and the Proverbs says that we're, a, we're fools if we hate that. We are, we're living, again, for our own kingdom rather than for God's kingdom. Uh, in fact, you are stupid if you hate correction from friends. Uh, it's not me who said it. Uh, Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. So, so what happens to stupid people? Well, Proverbs tells us that too. Proverbs 15.10, Stern discipline awaits him who leaves the path. He who hates correction will die. So it's either pain now or pain later. And I'd recommend you take the pain now because the pain later is death. We, we can deal with the wounds now. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So try to remember the last time you were corrected or rebuked by a friend or just told that you were doing something wrong. Do you remember what your reaction was? How did, how did you feel at the time, and then how did you react? Uh, and, or if you can't remember a specific instance, your, your, your mind is racing, can't think of something, how do you just normally react when, when people rebuke or correct you? Do you get defensive? Uh, well, the reason we get defensive when we get rebuked is because we think we're so awesome. We esteem ourselves so highly. Uh, so how can, how can we move from being one who's quick to defend what we esteem most ourselves to one who actually sees criticism as the wise man in Proverbs does and sees it as a blessing? Well, I've quoted this before. I'll quote it again. In an article called The Cross and Criticism, we hear this. If I know myself as crucified with Christ, I can now receive another's criticism with this attitude. You have not discovered a fraction of my guilt. Christ has said more about my sin, my failings, my rebellion, and my foolishness than any man can lay against me. I thank you for your corrections. They are a blessing and a kindness to me. For even when they are wrong or misplaced, they remind me of my true faults and sins, which my Lord and Savior paid dearly when he went to the cross for me. I want to hear your criticisms where they are valid. If you hate criticism and correction, you hate the cross of Christ. You know, because the, what does the cross say to us? It says that we were such big fools that the God of the universe had to come down in the person of his son and die a bloody death on the cross to rescue us from our foolish sin. That's what the cross says. But then also in the cross, it's not just severe, but it's a mercy uh, where we're justified at the cross. We're made clean. We're reconciled to God so that we can walk in newness of life and not be shaken to our core when someone criticizes us. So are you the kind of friend who can receive a rebuke well? Do you have any friends who know your life and your character well enough that they can call you out if you fall into patterns of lust, greed, selfishness, pride, laziness, judgmental thoughts, coarse talk? Do you have any friends who will call you out and who will, who will know you well enough to know, like, man, you've been judgmental lately? If you don't have good friends who can call you out when you start going down the path of death, you're in trouble. Uh, 
Many of us don't have friends who can rebuke us in love because we haven't sought out friends to serve and love us in this difficult way. Or, or we just think we're safe because, you know, we prayed a prayer, you know, so we're good to go. We're home free. We don't really need friends like this. I'm not saying that uh, the words of rebuke um, are always truth. Uh, sometimes, you know, someone will correct us and they're actually off, right? Um, and we, unfortunately, we almost always think that every time we're corrected. Uh, but uh, even when someone is off in their rebuke, it's not true. It's still for our good. You know, I, I think we can learn a lot about ourselves with how we respond to rebukes that we don't agree with. Um, again, I'm preaching to myself here. Uh, recently, I was criticized for something, uh, and uh, it bothered me for weeks because I thought I was right, and I thought they were wrong, and I still think I'm right. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I think it says there's something to be learned there because I think it says something about my prideful heart that it's still bothering me a little bit, even a few weeks later. You know, that I'm not humble enough to say, you know, I could be wrong. Um, or I, I need to hear that because I know in so many other areas that I can't see I'm wrong. And I, I need you. Proverbs 27, 17 says this. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We sharpen one another when we speak truth to one another. Uh, by ourselves, we become dull and blunted. We need real friends who will challenge us and provoke us. Uh, another quote here. One commentator says this. I, I just I love the way he put it here. Our various family backgrounds let, leave every one of us a little weird. So we need an honest friend from outside our tightly knit families to round us out. Every one of us needs to go to another person and say, help me see myself. Help me get sharper for Christ. And if no other person in your church is good enough to play that role for you, the problem is you. If you do not know anyone well enough yet to trust them at that level, are you seeking that person out? So who is that non-family member uh, in this church who is sharpening you as iron sharpens iron uh, and speak, by speaking the truth and love to you? Who is that person? Could you identify him like that? We, I think Proverbs is telling us we should be able to do that. We should be able to identify at least one person just like that. Uh, we need a brother or a sister who loves us enough to wound us with words of truth and rebuke. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon um, in terms of something to, maybe, to take with you and to do, I, I, I kind of hope it'd be this one, just as I think of us as a congregation, that you would seek, seek some, a brother or sister in this church out to be that kind of friend for you. So a wise tongue speaks life. We already considered that. Uh, wise ears listen to rebukes from a friend. And one practical way, basically, that we can do one and two is by uh, avoiding the friendship of fools. Proverbs has a lot to say about avoiding fools. If fools are your friends, you are a fool yourself. It's just, uh, we become like those we spend time with. It's just kind of a natural principle of life. So, how can we identify fools so that we can know who to avoid? <laughs> it sounds awful, but... Okay, Proverbs tells us pretty clearly, gangs. We thought about that in the first sermon in Proverbs. Those who are violent, those who steal, those who live for money, those who hate knowledge and wisdom, those who reject God's advice and spurn his re rebuke and discipline, those who do not fear the Lord, those who speak perverse words, who delight in sin, who are devious, who have haughty eyes, lying tongues those whose hands shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, false witnesses, those who stir up dissension among brothers, the deceitful, 
those with hot tempers and easily angered, those who drink too much, those who eat too much, the rebellious, unfaithful, those who break the law, those who hang out with prostitutes. Prostitutes. Do any of those descriptions describe your friends? There's a lot of them. You can read through Proverbs. They're like in every chapter. We see in Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion, companion of fools suffers harm. If fools are your friends, you will suffer harm. Uh, well, and then you say, might say, okay, wait a minute here. Jesus partied with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, you, know, we're not to, you know, we're not to remove ourselves from the world. We need to befriend and share God's love and truth with uh, sinners, uh, like many of the people that you named. This is true. But we need to remember a few things, lest we just kind of dismiss all of these warnings and proverbs about avoiding fools. First, we need to remember, you are not Jesus. Uh, it's great to be like Jesus to fools, but all too often we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and instead of influencing fools for Jesus, fools influence us away from Jesus. Second, Jesus spent the majority of his time with his disciples, those who were submitted to his authority. And he actually told his disciples, you know, shake the dust off your feet if people don't receive your message. Third, and finally, we need to exercise real wisdom and get some good counsel if we find ourselves spending large amounts of time with, with fools, with people who don't fear God. That This is something, if you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't fear God, it would be a, probably a good idea to talk to that good Christian friend or talk to a pastor that you trust and get some wisdom here. Because we, we know we, can't, we shouldn't just cut off you know, call our, our non-Christian friends today, call the, the foolish people that we thought of, and say, it's over. You know, that would not be a wise thing to do. We, we really have to have humility here because we need to recognize that actually we too are fools. Um, we're, we're, we're the kind of people apart from God's grace that other people should be avoiding. Uh, and and we, can, we can bring our friends down with our foolishness. What our friends need is to see us being daily conformed to the image of Christ. If you suspect that you might be bringing your friends down uh, due to your, maybe your temper or your pride, your greed, or your lust, you not only need some counseling, you need a supernatural change that can only be brought by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we need to ask, beg with God that he would reveal uh, the evil in our hearts and change us so that we might be a force of good in our relationships instead of bringing other people down. Well, uh, this just reminds us that we need to be regularly living lives of repentance as we examine um, our hearts for the foolishness that so often dwells below the surface. You know, my, my prayer for us as a church family is uh, that it would seem just as normal to ask one another, even like after the service, uh, about our ongoing struggles with sin as it would be to talk about health struggles. Uh, that you would be willing to ask that kind of awkward question about how someone's doing spiritually or maybe a, a, a sin struggle they shared with you in the past um, as you would to ask about uh, their family. Now, I'm not saying that we always have to, constantly have to be having those kinds of conversations, but if you're not having them at all, 
we're in trouble. We want to be a church of a bunch of fools who admit that we're fools and that we need Jesus and we need to bring our sin into the light and rely on each other as we walk in paths of repentance and faith. Well, uh, we've seen a wise friend avoids a fool, and one just practical way that you avoid fools is being a person, a wise person who promotes peace. A wise friend promotes peace in her friendships. You know, in, in a fallen world, friendships are messy. Uh, they're, they're messy because we're sinners, and sinners quarrel. Sinners fight. We fight. We stir up dissension. Sometimes, they're, you know, when we think of fight, we think of loud, you know, uh, yelling at each other. But sometimes fights are silent, withdrawing from each other, aren't they? And uh, we, we, we fight in our relationships. We offend. We all too often take revenge. We deceive. We get angry. You know, two sinners getting together in a friendship is dangerous because it's only a matter of time before a quarrel breaks out. And once that quarrel starts, it can have devastating results. We don't often think of that uh, as the quarrel's breaking out. But uh, Proverbs compares a quarrel between friends to the breaching of a dam. Uh, Proverbs 17, 14, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. You know, the, the breaching, breaching of a dam is a powerful image here. I, I mean, imagine how just a, a small breach and a dam can have such devastating consequences, can it? Uh, and the same is true. Proverbs is comparing a quarrel to this, to this image. When, when you insist on your own way and you, you don't approach a disagreement, inevitably there's going to be disagreements between friends, and if you don't approach that disagreement with humility and love, you, you become so blinded by your selfishness that many can be hurt in the wake of your sin and in your pride. Not just that relationship can be hurt, but many can be hurt because of the quarrel. So Proverbs is giving us some great wisdom here. Winning the argument is not worth it. Just drop it before tempers flare, before the friendship is damaged. Ask God to examine your heart so that you will not, uh, you know, always be, have, think that justice is always on your side. You know, it's odd how we always think justice is on our side and we're in the right. We need to be wise and recognize that that is not the case. We, we need to follow the advice of Paul in 1 Corinthians, who tells us in chapter 6, verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? I think only Christians can, can really take on that attitude as a part of, uh, of, of life. So consider, are you a friend who brings calm, gentle uh, answers, who brings peace into your relationships? Are you a person of peace? If, if I asked your closest friend about the last dis- disagreement that the two of you had, um, would your friends say that you, were, that you were calm, that you were humble, that you were gentle? Again, here at Henson, we desperately need to be a, pe- a church family that promotes peace in our individual relationships. Peace doesn't come from withdrawing from one another and living our independent lives. That's so often how the world uh, you know, lives at peace with each other. We build cul-de-sacs and build tall fences Uh, The world understands that, though. A true gospel peace comes from understanding that that we were enemies of God, and God made peace with us through the blood of his Son. When we fully believe and meditate on the great lengths that God went to reconcile sinners like us to himself, the Holy Spirit changes us from people who insist on our rights to people who are willing to overlook an offense 
and live at peace with one another. So how are you promoting peace here in this church family? What are you doing to promote peace? You know, we just had five new members join just this last week. Uh, and, and joining a church is one way that you uh, promote peace. You're saying, I'm getting invested. I'm in. I'm, uh, I'm asking for accountability. I'm declaring I'm part of the body of Christ, and I need you. I need you, church members. So how are you planning on getting in peaceful relationships, even with our newest members? Well, as we've already considered, the only way we can promote peace is by being willing to overlook an offense. So that brings us to our fifth point, a wise friend forgives. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. So often we fear, if I don't stand up for myself, who will? I can't let him walk all over me like that. Yet God tells us here that it is wisdom to be patient. Patience waits on God's perfect justice. Patience believes that God will one day make all things right and vindicate those who are in him. God will vindicate the wise and he will vindicate the righteous. He will lift up those who trust in his son rather than in themselves. And there's glory. We see there's glory in overlooking an offense. It's it's natural to react when sinned against. Everyone is upset when they're sinned against. But it is the glory of Christ. It's something supernatural to overlook the offense in love and when your friend treats you like an enemy. Brothers and sisters, I just want to meditate on this point, on the forgiveness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Where would we be if it were not for the deep forgiveness of the Savior? As Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed for those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Do you fully grasp that Jesus was praying for us as he prayed that prayer? You know, we sing in the, in the song, I will glory in my Redeemer. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I don't think we really get that, though. I, I think we don't fully get that when we sin against our friends, we sin against the God who created our friends in his image. When we use our words carelessly, when we gossip, when we get defensive, when we lash out at a friend, when we, when we hang around fools, when we talk too much against listening, we, we, we're driving in the nails. When we act as though we don't need friends, and we rarely invite people into our homes, and we rarely reach out to new people at church, I think we're spitting in Jesus' face, saying, what do I need you for? Well, in the midst of our selfish independence, our quarrels, our betrayal, and our murder of the King, King Jesus prays for us. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You know, if God's forgiveness cost him the life of his son, how can we not forgive those 
who sin against us. Finally, to conclude, we want to consider that a wise friend not only forgives, but is faithful. Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You know, God has given you friends that you might encourage them and be there when the day of adversity, when the day of trouble comes their way, as it will for all of us. And that day, you might not know what to say to your friend. You might not know what to do. You might not feel like you have the wisdom to comfort, to nourish, to say that, that, kind, that kind word in that time of tragedy. But what your friend needs is your friend needs someone who's going to be there, who's going to mourn with him, who's going to stick close by and be there in their day of sorrow. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You don't need a lot of friends. You certainly don't need a thousand. I think I agree with Jimmy Kimmel. It's impossible. You don't need to be everyone's friend. You need to be friendly with everyone, but we don't have to be everyone's best friend. You know, here in this church, just for example, there's 499 of us. Uh, We've committed to support, to pray, and to encourage one another. But you can't be best friends with everybody in this church. You, you You can't get to know on a deep friendship level everybody. But who would you rush to the hospital to see if uh, you heard that they were in an accident? Or who would you be uh, quick to congratulate once you heard good news of maybe a graduation or a new baby born? You know, our, our church is filled with people who are desperate for redemptive relationships. Filled. We, we're, we need redemptive relationships desperately. And why, again though, why should we go to this hard work, do this messy work of being faithful friends to each other? Well, because of the king who we worship. At great cost to himself, entered into friendship with difficult people like us. Shortly before Jesus was betrayed and crucified, Jesus said this to his disciples. My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Left to ourselves, we would have never chosen Jesus as a friend. You know, his glory was too bright. His perfection uh, shines into our hearts of darkness and reveals who we are in Adam in a way that we just want to run. But praise be to God that he had mercy on us and he chooses us to be his friends. And why? Why does he do this? Well, one reason, as we see in this passage here, is that we might love one another, that we might reflect his love and faithfulness in our friendships. Jesus shows his love to us by being one who always speaks life into our broken lives. He listens to us 
he rebukes and disciplines us. He did not become a fool by being around us, but instead he changed us from being fools to being his friends. He gives us peace through his death and his resurrection. And he promotes peace in the church by his Holy Spirit. He forgives us time and time again, though we are prone to wander, and he is faithful. He will never leave or forsake us. Who is a friend like Jesus? Are you like Jesus to your friends? Would you pray with me? And take a moment silently to consider maybe just one thing you would like to take away from the service today. Heavenly Father, that we can call you Father, that we can call your Son, Jesus, friend. Oh Lord, we we thank you. We thank you for what you have done to rescue us from our sin. Lord, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your gentleness. And we thank you for your faithfulness that will never let us go. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.